Welcome to China Biz Talk by Baiguan. This is Robert. Among the close to 3,000 subscribers of Baiguan, around 40% of you are investors or working in an investment firm. One big investment question about China in the recent years is whether China is still investable. At Baiguan, we always argue that China still is, but we know there are many skeptics out there. For them, China is too risky. So, is there a way to enjoy China's future growth? Without taking China risk, our guest today, Bob Chen, thinks there is such a way. Bob is an investor working for Mangrove Capital, a China-based venture capital fund specializing in software and globalization-themed investments. Bob has a very interesting career path. As one of the few Chinese undergraduates in the class of 2012 at University of Chicago, he studied economics. And political science, and first became a macroeconomist working for China's top policy think tank. He later quit the public service job and joined the venture capital industry. Over the past years, Bob has developed a specialty in investing in so-called Go Global Chuhai companies. One of his investments, Silvan Times, Saiwei Shidai, a large Amazon-based merchant, successfully IPO'd onto China A share market this year. I have known Bob for more than a decade, and he always strikes me as one of the deepest thinkers I personally know. His interests are also interdisciplinary, covering venture capital, macroeconomics, and China domestic capital markets. In fact, in July, we translated an article from his WeChat blog reviewing the recent history of A share market. So you are already familiar with him. So I'm really glad to have Bob join us today. Hi Bob, can you introduce a little bit about yourself as well? How have you developed into who you are today? Yeah, sure. So thanks, and I'm glad to join this conversation. And thanks for the compliments. So I started out my、uh, career as a macroeconomic economist. That's right after I graduated from the University of Chicago. I studied two majors. It's a double major at the University of Chicago. It's one economics, you know, what the school is famous for, and also political science, which is a less picked option for Chinese students at the time. So after coming back to China, you know, because I really miss the Chinese food, so I came back to China right after I graduated, and I joined the、uh, one of the、uh, state think tank, which is the Chinese Academy of Social Science, and、uh, studying、uh, policy policy making and economics there. That's how I started out、um, my career. It's actually a very、um, interesting experience at the time. What I learned in at the University of Chicago is all about free markets. It's about monetary policy, Chicago School of Thoughts, and then and then I came back to China and run into this Chinese reality and to see very closely how academia in China interacted with Chinese policymakers and many inside stories. It's very interesting to see how policies in China are made. I would say it's far from a free market style, but it's it's it has its own logic and its own. Rationale, so it's very interesting thing.、But、that's how I started out. How many years you've been working at the academy? It's almost for three years, three and a half. Okay, well,、wow. so but I know that you didn't pursue that path later, right? You you kind of、yeah. pivoted to a to some extent totally unrelated field of venture capital, <laughs> right? So how did that happen? Yeah, you can say that way. Not very relevant, but it's kind of related, and it helped a lot for my for my career as a venture capitalist. It took place in 2015. It's when the the prime minister, you know, Li,、right. who you know passed away recently. It's a sad story, but he encouraged、uh, people to to engage in innovation and also to join startups or even started startups. So that's the the hottest time for startups in China. So I so you know, Adibia, the the life is you know a little bit boring compared to the、uh, down to earth market thing. 
So I joined a venture capital at the time and started my career and my transition. I find it more fun and more interaction with real people and the real enterprises to see how the big economic machine works in reality. And that, and also I'm, I'm more like a practitioner. So I would like to see the practical side of the economy. So that's why I joined the venture capital and started from, from them on. Right. So you've basically, you've been in the VC field for eight years, right? How, how have you, I, I bet you have been through some cycles already. How have you compare, you know, the different stages of these last eight years? Oh yeah. Speaking of cycles, right. That's what economists study, right? Venture capitalists, they, they don't do that much about cycles. They just bet on growth and startups. It's, it's that's actually an interesting thing, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years is a golden age for startups and growth stocks and growth companies because of, for example, the ultra low interest rate of different countries, especially US and also China is rising and the international trade is rising and everything seems fine. So venture capitalists, they just find the best teams and they just bet their money on startups and the hot IPO market, both in Chinese Asia and also NASDAQ or the uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong stock market, they can, they just taking tons of IPOs and people got bonanza, got rich after they got IPO. And also the venture capitalists are benefited from this tide of growth stocks. So that's the theme of the last 10 years, but things have changed right since 2020. So the whole story, the whole picture has changed. And that's when the economic side comes into play and where my knowledge of economics come to play, because we have more factors, macro factors to think about when doing our investment. It's not like the golden age of venture capital, but it's, I think it's better time for me as a, with the economic background. Yeah. So it really seems that the, your training as economist has gotten you prepared for the last few years of the, I would say the downturn of the VC market, right? What's your current assessment? How do you, how do you feel about the industry? and the market at the, at the moment. I read your many articles on the WeChat blog. I had the feeling that you are one of those, you know, the pessimist camp, right? But also at the same time, I know you are a hardworking, very hardworking person. So the, I just want to understand why is the contrast there? How can you be, you know, pessimistic at the same time while you are also hardworking on your deals? Don't you want to just like lie down and, uh, you know, chill? Yeah, sure. You know, first of all, I have to work hard. It's not easy to land a job in recent market, you know, mm. but yeah, frankly speaking, I would like to say I am positively pessimistic. So I'm not totally pessimistic, but I still see the positive side of the market and I see no, I see a new round of opportunities emerging. I think first of all, I would like to say why I am a little bit pessimistic about the, the market trend. So for, for the venture capitalist in China, especially they can feel the, the winter is coming because the, first of all, the secondary market is not performing well. So the secondary market is not performing well, and it is negatively affecting the primary market because enterprises are feeling harder to get IPO. So the exit path for venture capitalists in China is harder. It's more difficult. So that's, uh, that's the first thing. And also the valuation of startups, especially when they, after they go IPO, they're under big pressure. So the booming market, they're now pricing in at a discount, the future growth, and that would have a huge pressure on the price of the stocks and also affect the return for the venture capitalist. That's one thing. And the other thing is that because the uh, geopolitical tensions and also the relationship between China and the US, the US dollar fund used to be a strong pillar for Chinese venture capital uh, sphere. They used to, I would say, pump like billions of dollars into the Chinese market and support many of the top uh, tech giants in China. 
However, they are withdrawing from the market, especially on the primary market, because of the restrictions from both sides. So that's a very sad story. And we see U.S. dollar fund, they are quitting China. And the, their LPs, their funders, they dislike China's Chinese market. And that affects the whole thing. So I would like to say the, the startup sphere and the venture capitalists in China is running into a completely new and more difficult time compared to the last 10 years, which I would call a golden age of China. Right. So what's the positive part? Well, that kind of relates to a few things, which is very special to China. I would say it's because the um, oversupply problem, there's a mismatch between the supply of China and the demand both domestic demand of China and uh, international global demand for Chinese goods. That, that kind of goes back to the uh, economic training I got. So from the point of view, from the perspective I see that China um, has a very uh, investment-driven economy in the past 10 years. So the local governments, the central governments, they encourage tons of money pumping into investment. So people build infrastructure, factories, and uh, like production, production capacity to produce goods to supply for the whole world. That's a good thing when China is emerging and rising rapidly. But when the domestic and global demand, they are just going down, that will uh, create a big problem for all those overcapacity and overinvestment. So that's why we see after 2020 and 21, when China is supplying for the world in pandemic, people, they overstock things. And after the pandemic, right, the overcapacity became the primary problem for China. And people have so many, and they have bought so many stuff during the pandemic, they don't want any more. So the durable goods and also consumer goods, the tide is coming down. So that creates a big problem for all the Chinese factories, manufacturers, and also people in China, they can't afford the high-priced or high-end goods. That's the domestic part. And also because the, the debt, they have to repay all those stuff and the real estate thing. All those factors combined all together, it makes this overcapacity in China a big problem. However, if we look back and see the other way, it, it is interesting to find that when I travel abroad this year, I see the whole world except for China. In US, in Japan, in Europe, there is a lack, a shortage of labor, and the whole inflation thing right, is overwhelming. So the, actually, it's the service side and also the goods, the food, and also the energy, the price are rising. It's interesting that there, there is a demand abroad, but the China, there's oversupply. So there's a mismatch here. So that's a puzzle that has um, confused me why there is this uh, stark contrast. It's a very interesting thing. So as far as I found, I would say it's because there is this, of course, decoupling is one of the factors. But also, we need enterprises to find a way to channel Chinese capacity and the supply to meet the new demand of the world, right? So enterprises in China can not only serve the 1.3 billion people in China, they can serve the 8 billion people around the world. It's just that we need entrepreneurs to identify all those demand abroad, all those global demand, and channel China's capacity to meet that demand, which is, I would say, not many good entrepreneurs or uh, people with global vision can do that in China. And that's a big opportunity. You see the deflation, there's even de deflation in China, which is so amazing to me because the whole world is, is, is uh, experiencing inflation, right? That's why, that's because the, there are so many factories that produce so many goods and there's a labor force surplus in China. Even though we are aging, there's aging population, but still there are so many people, they are looking for jobs and they want to, they, they will accept lower salaries to work in factories in China because of the economic downturns. So I would say there's a big potential to, to leverage in here. It just needs entrepreneurs to match the two sides, supply and demand. So what do you think about the difference between now and say 
you know, two decades ago when China just joined WTO and started to produce for the whole world. That's when, you know, made in China becomes such a big thing, right? It's not, it's nothing new. So what do you think the difference here? The difference here is the Chinese infrastructure and the factories has been more complete and well-built compared to the old days. So it used to be under supply, now it's oversupply. So that's the stark contrast, right. right? So when there is a undersupply, the return of investment is super high. But now there's oversupply, the return of invest investment is going down. That's the major difference. So what about the, I imagine that two decades ago when the domestic producer, they produce and export overseas, they were working with mostly just the, you know, the Western brands, the distributors, right? What about mm -hmm. the difference on that side? Oh yeah, the whole distributional uh, channels and also the uh, the form of international trade has changed a lot. That's a critical point you mentioned, and also which I have a very close up look into. So it used to be there was a lot of buyers, there was a lot of intermediaries in between the demand and supplies. So for example, all the big consumer goods chains or supermarkets in the states, they have these buyer groups. They just source goods and source supply chain all over the world. They came frequently to China back and forth or to the rest of the world, but mostly China because the supply chain is so concentrated and the China's prices are so attractive. So they came to China and to source goods. That has changed a lot during pandemic because they, they, have, they have very difficult, big problems finding getting a visa to come to China and also uh, travel around. So a new form of e-commerce is emerging, which has grown very rap rapidly during the pandemic, which is the cross-border e-commerce. It's also a big thesis of my investment. Yeah. So we see a lot of factories and manufacturers in China, they are selling directly to the U.S. consumers, either through Amazon, eBay, Shopify, or they just do the, their own D2C websites in the States or Europe. So they are facing directly to the consumers and cut the buyers. That's actually a very interesting thing because you see the buyers are like, they're finding a very big challenges right now. So, and the, but the whole supply chain is getting benefit from this because the, it's getting more efficient and they are the buyers. I mean, the consumers, they are enjoying the lower cost because the middle stage is cut. So I can give you some example. For example, I knew a fashion brand, which is very classic and it's uh, originated in New York city, but the pandemic has interrupted the whole operation in the U.S. So the, basically, they, they shut down all the shops in the States. But all the, the operation in China is still continues because the, the offline market is still operating at, in 2020 and 2021 in China. So then the Chinese team take over the whole operation thing and they sell directly through internet back to US. And the uh, Chinese team is getting a, a larger say in the whole operation because all the offline shops in US are shut down. And eventually now it has transitioned into an online shop, an online brand that uh, it is manufactured and shipped from China to all over the world. And the whole thing has changed. So it's no longer a very classic high-end US offline brand. It's, it's now become e-commerce brand. That's a pretty interesting story. And this, that story has took place in many industries and sectors and in many different forms of businesses. And we see that the Chinese entrepreneurs, they are expanding globally and they would like to know the, their customers directly and jump over the traders and also the buyers so that the whole supply chain is more efficient. And that's the big trend I'm seeing now. Yeah. So for that kind of business, is it true that the, basically the China-based team, they got hold or they control not only just the manufacturing, but also the product itself and also the design and the marketing and the consumer insights, the whole package, right? If I understand correctly. Yeah, that's a good point. We are seeing a transition. It's not that fast. 
Still, the top designers and the product developers are based in US because they're close to the end users and end customers. So they know better what the demand is. It's not just Apple, right? The, the designers are based in US, but they come back to China to source all those uh, manufacturers. So what we see now is a tran uh, transition. Of course, there were many people that have uh, study abroad experience, uh, for example, like you, they, they came back to China. They also know um, about the global consumers. So they can give a lot of good input into the manufacturers so that some manufacturers have taken the first step that they try to design rather than copy, copy from all those uh, top brands. They are trying to design originally their own products. And some of, some of the products, actually, they are they're getting better because, you know, the Chinese consumer market is so huge. They trained and they, they basically, they all those entrepreneurs, they compete in this cutting edge market so they can know very good details how to improve their products in the process. So sometimes the products are much better, actually, than their foreign counterparts. But most of them still is, is based in uh, US or Europe because they know the end consumer better. So that's a transitioning happening right now. Right, right. So talking about cross-border e-commerce, we obviously didn't mention the, the biggest elephants in the room, right? The, the Xi'ings and the Temu. What do you think of right. those platforms? How did they happen? I mean, what, what, did they just kind of seize on to the similar kind of opportunities that you mentioned? What, what kind of lessons we can draw from their growth? I, yeah, I would say yes, definitely. They are actually leveraging all those the Chinese overinvestment thing I talked about to go global. If you, you dive deep into the supply chain of Tamu and Xi'in, which I did a lot, I go to visit the factories and the manufacturers. Those people, they used to sell just stuff to the domestic market from Alibaba, from Taobao or Jindong, right? All those traditional channels, they're selling to domestic consumers. But the, the competition is so fierce. Like all those manufacturers, they just keep cutting costs and save money on everything. And also like keep the wage of laborers at a very low level. So they are facing a very tough competition environment. But when they are facing the uh, global markets, for example, the U.S. consumers, those people, they are, they are willing to pay high price and they can find counterparts in domestic market, for example, in U.S. or uh, U.S.-based consumer chain stores. It's very hard to find all those commodities and stuff. So the price gap and the margin is so attractive. So Tamu and Xi'in are leveraging this manufacturing and supply chain power to supply for those people who are willing to pay a higher price. So both sides, they get benefit from this process. So Xi'in, it's like a, it traces back to older times, like eight, almost 10 years ago. So they started out as a very, as far as, as I know, so from uh, the venture capitalist who has invested in Xi'in. They started out uh, with no such big ambition. They're just trying to make a D2C or not the D2C, just, just a simple brand that can sell Chinese apparel and clothing to US at very low cost. But gradually, they found that if they put a little bit advertising fee, the ROI, the return of investment is so high that people really want their stuff, right? Then they, they discover uh, some secrets to uh, pump up their growth. For example, they bundle up uh, different sets of suits, different sets of clothing together and to send them, ship them to uh, U.S. consumers. Many of the uh, U.S. consumers, they got a whole bundle of clothing in just at a price lower than $100. Mm -hmm. they, it's just like a big right Christmas gift for, for them. They can pick mm -hmm. anything from them. If they, if they just don't like it, they just, they just dump it. So that also created, I would say, a problem of waste. But the consumers, they like this. <laughs> they like this. So they, have, they feel like they have a lot of freedom. They have options. That's what satisfies their, their needs, right? They have options. So that's why Shein grows so rapidly that because no other U.S. consumer brands can do this, like a whole bunch, a whole bundle of clothing 
whole bundle of options to them at such a low cost. That's how Shin grew up, grows up. And Tamu, the same. If you visit uh, Tamu website, I would say it's like there were more SKUs. It's a professional word for different types of commodities and goods. So you can see such a broad range of SKUs, all those small goods, small stuff at such a low price, much broader range than like dollar shop in US or supermarkets or Walmart, right? It's like, it's just like a shop like a billionaire, which is the slogan they advertise in the Super Bowl. So the US consumer found that so interesting and so fun shopping. That's actually what Chinese people we are familiar with, right? We have so yeah. much, so many stuff in Taobao, but not in US. For example, this time I went to US, I tried to find a gift to bring back to China. I can't because everything is made in China and there's just a narrower range of options I can find in offline stores because of the stocking problem, a logistic thing. They can't have keep a very a large inventory. So that's a problem, but e-commerce makes this possible. And Tamu is leveraging this advantage to sh uh, ship all the US uh, consumers. That's right. the big change happening. Right. So we talk about D2C, direct-to-consumer brands, and I know it's a trend in the US as well. There are a bunch of, of these DTC companies, they got funding, they got IPO'd, but they also kind of got pummeled after their businesses kind of, you know, many of them, they, I would say they failed, right? So what's the difference, do you think, between the, those you know, more like China-based DTC and the, the US DTC companies? Well, frankly speaking, I would say they are still very two different kinds of species, very different. The US D2C brands, they are investing a lot in marketing fee and they are making a very good brand image. For, for example, eco-friendly, for example, ESG, all those stuff to attract consumers. But meanwhile, they, they really put a lot of money in marketing. So they are still, many of them are still unprofitable. That's that. But for Chinese D2C, which are very different, the, the, killer, the killer weapon or the killer image for them is they're cheap. I will say they're expensive and cost effective. They're not necessarily cheap, right? It's inexpensive and cost effective. And that's the killer, right? That's enough. And also a broad range of options. So that's Chinese D2C. But mostly it's not yet D2C because they are not having a dialogue with their end consumers yet. It's very hard for them to deliver their brand image directly to their customers. Many of them are still doing business on Amazon or eBay. And it's difficult to bring your image and also your branding to customers on these platforms. Some of them are doing one more step that they build their own website and try to attract all those users, come back to their website to buy again and again. That's the uh, retention rate, which we uh, focus a lot when we are assessing a D2C brand. Uh, they are making some progress. For example, in some very niche market, some of the Chinese brands has already established a good reputation. For example, uh, for auto parts, uh, that's one thing. And for some sports camera, also for Jones, you know, DJ Jones, all, all those new electronic appliances, some of them are still working very hard to bring their image to the consumers because there's still distrust being made in China for many global end users. So we are seeing a difference here, but, but some of them are already making progress, especially for those categories where functions comes before other things, before marketing, before branding, other things, because you can compare functions very easily and you can see all the details and the data. So when Chinese companies, they can do function and cost effective together, and they can bring their image to the end consumers very easily. But if it's more like uh, ESG or something else, I think we, we're, still, we're still lagging behind right. uh, the original brands. Right, like the luxury products, the aesthetics, all those more hard, subtle, subtle kind of thing, right? It takes time. Yeah. Europeans are doing good. Yeah, right. So Actually, we, we mentioned, we talk about how you know, competitive these Chinese companies are. But when I hear you talking about this, I had this fear 
that maybe it could be too competitive to the point that sooner or later there will be a strong wave of protectionism, right, against these companies. People will call this dumping, right? Even though I think it's just very possible, you know, selling good products at a good price. But to some people, that's that is dumping. But how do you evaluate that? How do you think? In what way can that be avoided? Is there any way for, for example, the Chinese companies? They actually not only just take all the profits, but also kind of spread out a little bit and let more parts of the world benefit from this kind of opportunity. Right, that's a very critical point, and also a big risk factors on the venture capitalists in China. They are assessing. It's a very real threat to Chinese companies. As far as I know, people are struggling to deal with this problem. For example. Let me give give you a very specific example on auto parts.、Uh, U.S. charge a, a high、uh, tariff on auto parts. It's almost close to thirty、uh, percent, which is crazily high. And、uh, for most countries,、um, if they are suffering from this tariff, they this,、uh, their products are not uh, uh, price competitive at all. But still, Chinese companies they are pressing down their cost, and they are still getting a profit from this.、Wow. However. It's still extra extra cost, so they have to move or starting to move their factories to Southeast Asia or Mexico, even in Mexico, to avoid this. They build or manufacture their parts and then ship them to SEA countries and put the whole things together over there and ship from there to US or Europe to avoid this tariff. So Chinese entrepreneurs are smart. They are basically doing everything to supply cost-effective commodities to end consumers. But the challenge is also very, very high. I would say that's one good thing to emerging markets, especially for Mexico or FEA countries, because the the best entrepreneurs, the most active entrepreneurs, they are actively moving to these countries and help build infrastructure and factories and、uh, provide jobs to local people. So the decoupling thing is actually benefiting emerging markets, to my point of view, and that was led by Chinese entrepreneurs, right? Right. So the one belt one road advocated by China,、uh, actually it has grown slowly before the pandemic. But after the tariff and the decoupling thing came into play, like Chinese people, Chinese entrepreneurs, they are moving so actively abroad to help those countries to rebuild their capacity. So that's a very interesting thing. So actually, China, I think China and the whole emerging markets is benefit from this trend. But of course, it's not a good thing for Chinese domestic market or China's investment or capacity. But it's a big picture here. Right. So at at our you know our Baguan Radio last time we also invited someone Yipong our friend as well who is in the cross border automobile trade and he also mentioned similar things. Basically, Chinese entrepreneurs are setting up helping countries like Nigeria, Kazakhstan to build the the infrastructure to also the capacity to、uh, mm-hmm. supply the whole world. So that's 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 really interesting. So apart from Beijing and Timu. What other opportunities are you seeing? Because these two guys are just super big, right? But realistically, for other people, how 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 do you play this? Yeah, apart from them, there are actually so many players. I would say top players in China doing cross border, like cross border e-commerce.、Mm-hmm. It's not self bragging, this, but give an example: Seven Times, which is one of the largest apparel sellers in Amazon, which I invested in in 2020. They go IPO in Chinese Asian market. They basically sell like one billion US dollar. Of apparel every year on Amazon,、mm. it's still not that big as Shein, but it's a major player in Amazon as well. And、uh, there were so many counterparts in China. They have not yet gone public, or they are just making their profit under the water. There were many of them in Shenzhen, in the South China, and also the Eastern China. So many players there. That's one thing. And also the the cross border e-commerce 
has made Chinese entrepreneurs or people familiar with the uh, Chinese model. They are building infrastructure for the developed countries. That's very oh. interesting. A uh, very interesting thing. What do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean? Uh, I would say, for example, the last mile delivery in the States or in Europe is of low efficiency compared to those in China. So Amazon itself, because of the, the sales volume, the e-commerce thing, they are engaged in like building up a lot of infrastructure of last mile. So they have Amazon delivery, right? So it brings down the shipping day from like 10 days to three days or next day prime. However, the capacity is still low because the UPS, the FedEx, the old players, the giants, they're still charging a very high fees for all those shippings. So there's an undersupply of last mile shipping, cost effective and fast delivery in the States. So, but however, because of Tamil, because of Xin, the huge volume of shippings happened every day. They are supporting their own last mile delivery system in the States. Then they are investing or uh, venture capitalists are investing uh, in infrastructure, for example, last mile delivery in US. And that's one rising emerging big thing there. So it's very interesting that Chinese e-commerce thing is reshaping the infrastructure even in developed countries. And they are pumping money to do that. Uh, of course, it is a long way to go because of the, all the restrictions, because last, last mile has um, the data privacy, because the, they need to know the household addresses and so forth. Um, so it's mostly uh, not Chinese companies, but people familiar with the Chinese logistic thing. They are building those last mile networks in the States, in Europe, in Australia, even in UK, all those countries. They know how the whole last mile thing has helped Chinese e-commerce growing so fast in the past decade. So they know the experience and they know it can be done. And once it's done, it will boost the e-commerce back and it will help the whole e-commerce thing grow even faster. So. And that's a win-win situation, right? So we can see the Chinese model exporting to the states in a very right. it's it's surprising to me. I mean, this is the age of decoupling or whatever de-risking. But but you, what you're saying is even in such time, the Chinese they're actually helping to shape the infrastructure of the U.S. at such a grassroots community level, and helping right, improving right. The, the infrastructure over there. Yeah, ironically, right? It's the age of decoupling, but it's helping to reshape. U.S. infrastructure, Europe infrastructure, and also emerging market infrastructure mm. by the Chinese players. Wow. Wow. Okay. Great. Yeah. So among our readers and listeners, there are many, many investors from both the secondary market, the hedge funds, the sovereign wealth funds, as well as from private equity and venture capital funds around the world, right? So to them, Bob, what's your you know, specific suggestions for where to look for investment. Can you share a little bit of your best ideas with us? Thank you for listening. This is the end of the free segment of this episode. The rest is reserved for the paid subscriber of Baiguan.